right, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Untitled Jeff Cluck Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Cluck, and I'm standing outside the grandstands at Richmond Raceway with Matt Gross, who is not a media member. I usually do these with media members, but he's an extremely knowledgeable race fan who I've gotten to know over the years, and I've been wanting to have him on the podcast for some time. He always comes to this Richmond race. And so, uh, Matt, you are here with me. How are you? I'm great. I've been dreaming about this moment since this podcast started in 2017. Well, here you are, and you probably thought it was going to be a little bit better because, uh, in full disclosure, you're wearing a Miller Lite jersey shirt type thing, and it looks for a while like your guy was going to win, and you were going to actually see him go to victory lane and get all excited about that, and uh, that's not how it worked out because his nemesis, Kyle Busch, ends up going to victory lane anyway. So first of all, your your uh, emotional gut instinct reaction to that. You've ruined my ability to fake bias. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I went into this race not expecting Brad to win. Having been a NASCAR fan since 1990, I think this three-race winning streak he's been on is one of the most unlikely three-race winning streaks I've ever seen. Usually... A car that goes on that kind of streak has more speed, and he's generally had about a fifth-place car, which I think he had today. I think that last run, he drove beyond the limit of what the tires could have held because he knew at this stage it was win or nothing. So why conserve them and get a fourth or fifth-place finish? Run hard, hope for another costume with 30 to go and try again. So that ended up about how I thought it would. Yeah. So it seemed like he definitely was just going all out to try to do whatever he could to retain the lead there. He knew he was burning the tires off it. But as he said to his team, he kind of apologized like, sorry, I was just I know I smoked the tires, but that was what I had to do. Um, He said that he may have rubbed Kyle a little bit. I didn't see that part on the replay. He said there may have been some contact. And I asked uh, what was with you you didn't see this because you were in the grandstand. But NBC zoomed in on Kyle's car after they passed and Kyle stuck his hand out the window with a flat palm like what the hell was that kind of thing so I don't know whether uh we'll we'll find out after this I'm going to go back in the infield but whether Kyle was saying what the hell why'd you race me so hard or why'd you make contact with me or why are you Brad Keselowski and I hate you so much it was one of those but Keselowski said I I would never dare read the try to read the mind of Kyle Busch or get inside Kyle Busch's mind so I have no idea why he was doing that but um it seemed like it was it was sort of inevitable, even though Brad had the lead, that it, he just wasn't going to be able to hold it. Yeah, he would have needed a well-timed caution. You know, one of the fun things about Brad and Kyle is it's one of the few true rivalries that exist in the sport where you can tell those two drivers just genuinely dislike each other and want to beat each other. It reminds me of kind of the heyday of racing here back in the 90s when Dale and Rusty would be side-by-side side for 20 laps, and that, that stretch there with about 40 to go felt like that. Yeah. I realized Brad didn't have the car to hold him off, but... You know, out of a race that was probably kind of ho-hum for the most part, that was a, that was an entertaining 20-lap battle between the two of them. Yeah, so I think that, you know, it's probably fair to say that most people would agree that the first 300 laps or 300, uh, probably 20 laps, were not the most exciting uh, that we've seen, especially in this recent stretch of pretty exciting races. Once there was that caution, um, I think there was maybe about 70 to go or something like that. The, the Jeffrey Earnhardt Kenseth caution and things got reset from there on the last 70 laps or so were pretty strong um, Kyle got out to a lead and then Keselowski comes um, there was passing you know you had a good battle with um, Truex and Chase Elliott ultimately the big three finished one two three so you could have gone back two months ago and said well yeah how will Richmond turn out that's ex- pretty much what you would have said or in some in some order but 
I do think it got a little bit better. Um, just a quick recap, and, and I'm sorry, we're doing this on the fly, so I don't have the exact points in front of me, but I believe the current drivers out are um, Clint Boyer, Jimmy Johnson, Eric Jones, and Denny Hamlin. Um, I did get to talk to Johnson briefly after the race, and he was pretty much like, yeah, we're going to go on to the Roval and just take our chances. Um, I think Jones left rather quickly. I, I heard from Bob Pachris that he was able to chase down Hamlin, and he was not happy about how his uh, evening went. And um, obviously Boyer, I think, ended up salvaging somewhere close to a top 10 or 11th, something like that. But he just he was, he was didn't really have the points um, to be able to do that. He didn't really come in with many playoff points. So Yeah, I'd say a couple of things with that. One, the most exciting moment of the first 300 laps was when Boyer barely beat back Truex to stay on the, on the lead lap at the end of the second stage. Or, yeah, in the second stage. Right. And then most surprising was, yeah, Hamlin's run really shocked me, especially when I saw he had the first pit stall. He's always run so well here. Didn't know if he'd win, but it felt like this was a race he'd at least tighten the gap to give himself a good shot at the road course, where we know he's a pretty good road course racer. Uh, him and Boyer really surprised me with the way their runs were today. I know Boyer got the top 10, but the fact that he's still out, especially when we keep having this conversation about, well, who's the fourth driver to join the big three? And for a lot of the season, it looked like it was going to be Clint Boyer. And now it looks like he's got as good a shot as any to miss the second round of the playoffs. Yeah, I, I can't remember. I think it might have been um, Chase Elliott, actually, in his media session this week, who made a really good point. And that was that historically... Um, in these in these elimination playoffs, there's a couple guys in that first round there who kind of snuck their way in, and so they're easy to pick pick right off, right? And this time, it was a pretty consistent, solid 16 for the entire season, which means that this battle for the the next round is really there's going to be some decent names eliminated, um, and then the the one guy that you would have thought would be the easy out, Austin Dillon in this first round is really running well. He finishes sixth tonight. And he's in decent position for the Roval to somehow advance where these big-name guys with really good teams, or, you know, you would think would be able to get through or not. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say Austin Dillon had one of the best nights tonight. Him and Eric Amarola, who was close to the cutoff line and really vaulted himself pretty far above it. So as long as he has a decent run next week, he should be safe. The one driver who struggled, and he called this at Vegas, and I didn't realize that he typically had a tough timer, but it was Ryan Blaney. Mm. And Blaney's getting dangerously close to that cutoff line, and I'd say he's been inconsistent on the road course. And frankly, his team has been struggling the better part of the last couple months. So, as somebody who is biased, wearing Penske colors, I'm, I'm probably most nervous for Blaney's chances of all the drivers who are currently in that could fall out. I think he could have a, a, a tough time at Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, some drivers had uh, difficult nights due to penalties and things like that, or, or stuff not of their own doing. Blaney had a difficult night, but just because they were, like, off. He could just could never get it right. He was the lowest playoff driver for a while tonight. I, I happened to be there when he was getting out of his car because I was trying to talk to Dylan, and he's just, you know, shaking him he his head at himself, uh, just looking disgusted, uh, just sort of blank expression on his face after he got out of the car. So he could clearly was really disappointed, um, and, and obviously they're just not running well at all right now. They, they could be easily eliminated next week but you know the thing is about the roval it's going to be such a tremendous crapshoot um somebody asked brad after the race 
you know, hey, what, you know, do you think you'll be able to go have some fun at the Roval now that you don't have the pressure, you know, because he won Vegas, so he's locked in. And he said, well, I guess as much fun as you have, you can have when you're going to go wreck 30 cars. So um, <laughs> people are expecting absolute, I mean, Johnson said after this race tonight, you can barely get through one lap of the Roval without wrecking yourself, let alone all the different cars on the track. Wow. It's going to be I think this is going to be one of the most anticipated races of the season, maybe not in a good way, but just in a complete chaotic way. So I have no idea what's going to happen. So I'll say a few things about the Roval. First of all, I've been a NASCAR fan since 1990. And when I think back to all of the new tracks I've seen come on the schedule in that time frame, I am next to when Indy was added in 94. This is the second most excited I've been for a new track. Really? Just, wow. Well, it's just it's so different than everything else we've seen. Frankly, I've been a big fan of road course racing. The road course racing lately has been great. I hope this is a good race. I hope it's not a disaster. Whichever way it goes, I give a lot of credit to Bruton Smith, who I know, or I guess Marcus Smith now, who runs the, the, the uh, company. I know they get a lot of flack for what they did to Bristol. I'm still mad they took away the carousel for the cup cars at Sonoma. But I give them a lot of credit for trying the Roval. You know, the fall race at Charlotte has never historically been a great race. And now it's highly anticipated, so I hope it's successful. I hope it's something other tracks end up doing. But even if it's not, I give them a lot of credit for trying. It is pretty remarkable how, you know, that that race at Charlotte, as you mentioned, is typically a pretty much a blah fest. I mean, it's it's pretty boring. Um, that that track just hasn't aged well for mile and a half racing. It's just not not conducive right now to great racing. So they took what they have and they are trying to make it uh, something creative. And now. It's, it really is something where it's been on the calendar all year, and everybody's been talking about it all year. Uh, it's really added a, a fascinating dynamic to this first round. And the drivers, like like I've mentioned, I mean, they seem outright fearful of it. So um, I, I just I am so interested in what's going to happen. And, and that's, you know, the best racing, as, as your guy Brad says, is the unpredictable racing. Yeah. And so it's definitely going to be unpredictable, you know. I think that helped, you know, Indy a few weeks ago with the fact that there was no practice, no qualifying. The first time they're on the track was the race. I think that's what added to having one of the most intriguing Brickyard 400s we've ever seen. Yeah. Was that, that unpredictability. You know, I as we've talked throughout the years, I'm a, a big fan of the way things used to be like a lot of fans are. And to the point that when I'm at home and I have nothing on, that I want to watch on TV, I just pull old races up on YouTube and play them on the TV. And watching the races from the 90s and the 80s, the difference was there was some natural unpredictability. You know, the teams, I keep thinking about what's going to fix the sport and make it better. I think the one fixable, although challenging thing, of course, is shaking up the schedule. I understand the political and business dynamics behind that. But the hard thing that I don't think you can fix is the teams just know a lot more than they knew then. If you hear about the way they were setting up the cars back then, we've now realized it's complete, it was completely wrong. So there was more unpredictability just based in that, and you don't have that anymore. So when you have that element like... The Brickyard 400 with no practice, or now this new Roval. It's it's exciting for the fans. I'm, I'm looking forward to next week. Like I said, I hope it's successful. I hope it makes other tracks follow suit. But even if it's not, I'm glad that they're doing it. Yeah, and this is kind of the, one of the reasons why, why I wanted to have you on. Um, you have so much uh, of knowledge, I feel like, of, of the history and such a broad perspective. I, I started watching NASCAR in 2004, so I can't really speak to you know that well to the 90s and 80s you know stuff like that aside from the highlight reels uh, i haven't really gone back and watched that many old races to be honest with you um like you have and, and every time i talk to you or you'll, you'll text me sometimes uh your observations about a race um i think you have a very interesting perspective so how has this season been for you from your perspective i know you've had some frustrations in recent years 
Uh, is this a good season? What, 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 what's your take? You know, there's been an interesting arc. So I think the beginning, oh, this is a helicopter taking off behind us. Yeah. I think the beginning of the 2017 season was really intriguing. There were a lot of different winners, a lot of surprise winners, and that was a pretty entertaining season right until July. And then it was pretty clear that it, if the 18 or 78 didn't have trouble, they were probably winning the race. And then you throw the four into that mix, and that trend continued all the way through the end of this June. Yeah. And now, as you were, t- I was actually mad when I saw your column last week because I was ready to make this great, brilliant point <laughs> on the podcast this week. I think the season has turned around a fair amount. I'm much more excited for it than I was through the first half of it. Um, but, you know, I think the big difference between those older races and what you see now, you know, through things like double-file restarts, green-white checkers, a lot of late-race cautions, you frankly do often get better finishes now than you had in the 80s and 90s. What you had then that's missing now was, I think, better racing through the first three quarters of the race. And while sure, a great finish is exciting and memorable, when you're sitting here and watching this for three and a half hours, it's better to be entertained for the bulk of that time rather Mm -hmm. than just the last 15 minutes of that time. So while I think the notion that every race had a great finish in the 90s is a misnomer, it didn't, um, in the 80s, there was really intriguing racing that went on throughout the whole course of the event. I think I, when I watched like the race here from a 93 when Davey Allison got his last career win, which was my first race here, so I like to watch that one. The first couple hundred laps, you really didn't know who was going to win it. Kyle Petty had a good run, Darrell Waltrip had a good run, Davey emerged to win. Nothing about the finish was memorable, but it was just really good racing all throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's been missing a, a bit. I do think the stages have helped that. I am a fan of the stage racing. Um, as someone who is outspokenly against the chase, or sorry, the playoffs, uh-huh. I do like how both the stages and the playoff bonus points have added more relevance to the regular season. I think that was sorely missing. Um, but anything they can do to make the whole event, not just the last 15 to 20 minutes, exciting is a positive thing. Yeah, and, and to your point, I mean, that, that was exactly how the race went tonight is how so many races go in NASCAR these days where you have the bulk of it, uh, you know, there's not necessarily a lot going on. Then maybe a late caution shakes things up. Good finish. People go, oh, wow, that was kind of cool at the end. But, you know, I'm sitting there at, at points tonight going, I wonder if they should shorten this race. And it's only 400 laps, yeah. but, you know, it's just a three-hour race. But it's like, man, you know, these shorter races like Xfinity race I thought was great um, on, on Friday night. It seemed to create a lot of urgency. Um, it, you know, you just wonder what, what they could do. But, um, you know, aside from the stages tonight, I think there was only one caution. That, that Jeffrey Earnhardt caution, I believe, was the only non-stage uh, caution of the night. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you, and this is a short track, right? I mean, so, like, it's sort of like the, the racing here is a little bit, uh, I don't want to say broken, but you, you even go back to Martinsville in the spring, uh, only four cautions. So, and that was, you know, the day after a snow race and maybe people were trying to get out of there. But Brad Keselowski, again, going back to his comments after, after his race tonight, says, Hey, you know, I thought this, I, he said, actually, these words shocked. He said, I was shocked at how this turned out. I thought it's going to be an absolute slugfest. I thought there'd be five cars running at the finish, but everybody maybe is so scared of the Roval. They didn't want to push it. Uh, so it is interesting how the racing has evolved over the years. Like I said, I feel like you have a better uh, historical perspective th- than I do, but um, I don't really know what to make of it or how you fix it or what the solutions are, uh, you know, each week to week, but um, it's, it's definitely something that NASCAR seems to constantly grapple with. I think the more you can continue to do to make downforce less relevant and mechanical grip more relevant is positive. I think the, the steps they took to reduce downforce in 2015, 
well, the, uh, the experiments in 2015 and the steps in 2016 and 17 were positive. That's why I'm not thrilled about the notion of the new package they're going to, which is going to be more aero-dependent, I realize, from a drafting standpoint, but still. I think it was that reliance on mechanical grip that, that made the racing better. But there were always stretches in these races, even in the 90s, where there were 100, 150 laps for somebody to run away. Yeah. I, we always thought the best race we ever saw here was the fall race in 1998. Because nobody ever got that far out in front. The lead changed a bunch, and it had a great finish between Jeff Burton and Jeff Gordon. If there's any folks that like to watch races on YouTube, pull that one up. The X-Side, I think it was the X-Side Select 400 from 98. But I think you've actually always had that to a degree here, but this mm -hmm. has been a track that typically would get good finishes. Um, and it's still, you know, to me, a, a ho-hum short track race is still better than your standard 1.5-mile race. Yeah. And yeah. I realize you've had a couple go. Vegas was great. Chicagoland was great. Uh, I wish that those were more of the rule than the exception, but mm -hmm. even a so-so race here is generally better than some of the bigger tracks that they go to. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, um, before we go into the was it a good race poll and, and wrap up the podcast, do you want to step back in time for a moment to an interview I did uh, earlier in the weekend? Um, I spoke with Paige Kozlowski about some of the work that she's doing right now because obviously we're in um, we're near what what happened with the hurricane. We're one state away. Uh, if you see you guys have seen online, Chrissy Newman has been like literally in the water saving pets. Uh, with the Code 3 Associates thing in her training she's been doing. Paige Kozlowski's also been doing uh, some things with her and Brad's uh, foundation, the Checkered Flag Foundation. So I spoke with her, and I want uh, to include that in the post-race podcast because I think it's important. So let's, let's listen to that conversation really quick. All right, everybody, I'm here with Paige Kozlowski. And Paige, um, this is, we're recording this before the Richmond race, so we don't know what happened in the Richmond race. So it could be four in a row, for all we know. That but would be great. As of now, it's three in a row. And so you've had this experience of um, this really big high, obviously. Brad's winning, doing great all of a sudden. I mean, just out of nowhere, reeling off these wins. But you weren't even there for the third win because you've been quite busy. Can you tell us what you've been up to and what this last week has been like for you? Yeah, so uh, we've been on three weeks of straight highs of winning. So um, it, it's been really exciting, a, a lot of things going on. And then uh, I was already planning not to go to uh, Las Vegas, actually, just because we've just – it's just been so crazy. From our off week, we were gone for eight days, and then all the wins from Darlington to, to Indy and being stuck in the bus for rain delay, I just thought that Scarlett probably needed a break from the road, and uh, I know I did. So um, – Plus, the, then the hurricane was coming, and at the time, um, it was the path was set to hit where my, my family lives. Um, so I didn't know if they were going to end up leaving or, or whatever, so we would be in Charlotte, and they could come stay with us. Uh, anyways, it ended not, not happening that way. So um, once it downgraded to a tropical storm and we kind of saw um, some of the effects in our area, I ended up... Um, finding a way home and uh, got to, to my family and they've been blessed and spared and the house is still standing. Uh, my brother, he had some flooding. Uh, he lives about 30 miles from, from my parents. And so his was flooded. And then we have a lot of family, friends, a lot of first responders we know just growing up in the area that have really lost everything. So um, it just, it's just something that I felt like giving back to all of those people back home. I mean, I've 
lived through a lot of hurricanes on the east coast growing up we've been through a lot my parents have never never left we've Mm. always stayed really um we've had uh flooding uh we've had everything you can imagine um you know the outer banks is the beach that i grew up on the most and it's had some pretty devastating impacts um over the years and luckily they were um they weren't completely spared but um they're in a lot better shape than our friends down in in wilmington and south of us Uh, so yeah i went home and uh when i was 15 uh i think i was 15 back when isabel isabel the hurricane isabel hit i remember that i was uh i was i volunteered with our um county with our emergency management team and um it was just very rewarding at that time to be able to you know 15 you didn't you weren't able to get out and get your hands dirty and things but just to answer phone calls and see what needed post flyers do whatever I could to help um help our community was really rewarding so now you know I'm just thankful to Brad for for letting me kind of run with this and kind of steer our checkered flag foundation team in the direction that I kind of wanted to see it go and kind of use this platform to to be able to give back to our first responders uh there on the east coast so we have a lot of initiatives going on a lot of things happening right now um, we started our united together campaign which is our t-shirts um, they're 25 dollars, and you can find them on checkeredflagfoundation.org uh, we've sold right now over 500 t-shirts and wow. brad and i we're going to double those um, we are making plans as we speak which will be released in the next few days about plans to get our t-shirts and supplies um, that we've heard from um, multiple communities around there um, food uh, we're going to try to to do something next week to get back home and be able to deliver all of that uh, we've had eight thousand well we will we'll, we will be having eight thousand gallons of fuel being delivered to jacksonville on Monday, um, R.K. Allen Oil Company out of Alabama, they actually uh, supply all the fuel for our jet dryers at Talladega. Okay. And they are, uh, they've graciously donated the fuel and will be delivering it on Monday for us. And then Darlington has gotten behind it, and we're really, really happy about that. Bojangles has come on board. Um, I've had some friends back home who own some businesses, and they're um, pledging to donate some of their, their funds to our campaign. So, uh, all of that, along with all of the awesome Brad Keselowski fans, uh, we've we've been able to raise over forty thousand dollars so wow. far. And has it even been a week? It's not even been a week. So, I'm personally very proud of that, and we are very eager to get out there next week and be able to um, put all of this in the hands of some first responders, linemen, all of our emergency teams that could really use it. So yeah, um, it seems like this really fits with what you're describing with what I know of the foundation because the foundation's talking about helping veterans and first responders primarily that's the focus or then their families if I'm not incorrect you can correct me but um so you know there's obviously a lot of different needs in different areas of people right now suffering from the flood damage and the hurricane damage stuff like that but you're specifically trying to help the people who are helping others right is that correct yes that's correct so um you know our mission is to serve those who are making great sacrifices for us and keeping mm-hmm. us safe and um so for us our, our funds are going to are going to go to first responders linemen emergency teams that are out there saving people from the flood waters who's trying to restore power um 
which is all of that is very dangerous and and although the the hurricanes come through it's it's not over for those areas there i just read earlier there was a dam expected to break um or maybe it already has broken um so there's just still a lot of flooding the rivers are still cresting out there there's still flood waters in a lot of areas Um, a lot of people need help and you know, I just I also want to mention Ryan and Chrissy Newman and the Rescue Ranch. They are doing some amazing work out there to help save everyone's animals and pets. And it's just they really are. They're actually out in the floodwaters rescuing anything that they see and anything that they can help. And um, it's just a really amazing cause. Brad and I are, are working with them on the side to get them some supplies and needs as well. So we've wow. we've got a whole lot going on from a whole bunch of different angles, but we're really grateful to everyone who supported us in this United Together campaign so far. So if people are like um, listening to this and they want to help out, is it as simple as buying a shirt or is there other stuff they can do as well? How do they um, chip in? Yeah, so we've we've got this question a lot, like what supplies do you need? What what can we give? And and honestly, those are changing every day with the needs um, that are being assessed uh, back home. Uh, I've been in contact with multiple fire chiefs, assistant fire chiefs, and emergency management teams, and we are steadily trying to determine what exactly is going to best benefit them out there. So at this point, you know, we just ask that you buy a $25 t-shirt and your funds are going to go to get the the supplies that they need. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel so inclined to donate more, there is also an option to donate more on our website and those funds will be given to Hurricane Relief too. Um, You can find that on checkeredflagfoundation.org. Okay, so checkeredflagfoundation.org, they yes. can go there and buy a t-shirt, yep. and then you'll be using the money, and um, it goes to help these people who are helping others. Yeah, so we'll, our team um, will go out and buy um, any supplies that we need. We'll use that money to go out ourselves. We'll buy it. We're going to uh, put it in a trailer, and we're going to work in the next few weeks to make some deliveries. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paige, for the work you're doing on behalf of everybody, and I appreciate you um, joining us to shed some light on it. Thanks for having me, Jeff. All right, everybody, I'm back here with Matt Gross, and we're going to wrap up the Richmond part of the podcast, and we will talk about, was it a good race tonight? Uh, you know, here's the factors that go into it. So as we mentioned, the first 300 laps, not as exciting as the last 70, um, and then you had Kyle Bush winning, which is automatically probably going to take 10% off. You also had the big three going one, two, three tonight, which some people may be tired of the big three. So, Matt, do you want me to go first? or uh... I'll go first. So you, you have those negatives, but you also have it was a short track race. Uh-huh. It was under the lights, as people still like. Uh-huh. And it was a playoff race, which I think bumped some of that back up. So I'm going to be, I don't know if this is optimistic, I'm going to go 65%. Wow, okay. I feel like that might be fairly close. Um, oh, boy, this is tough. You know, last week I had This Davies. is why I went first. Yeah. I had Davey Siegel on last week, and he said 84% for Las Vegas, and he got it exactly right. So now I feel pressure to uh, really get my winning streak back here. I can't let the guests go two in a row. So you're saying 65%. Uh, ugh, I, yeah, man, I I really feel like it, it could be a little bit higher just because it got good at the end, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of 
grasping at straws here. I'm just going to say 72%. I, I feel like I may be going high. You came close to prices riding me on that one. I know. I, I left you a little bit more room. Last week, Davey said 84. I said 80. So I, I left you more room. You know, I'm trying to be courteous to you here. Well, I'm an amateur, so I, I appreciate that. No, you're, you're doing really good. Uh, you would not know that you're not a media member based on this uh, podcast. I think you're, you have great insights, as I mentioned. Um, let's wrap up with, with some final thoughts about um, your predictions going forward. I, as I mentioned, you're a Brad fan. What happens to Brad with all this? He just won three in a row. Um, now he faded a little bit tonight. Uh, you know, he, he had a chance to win, but it, he didn't really have the best car, as, as he did in the, in the three races he won. What happens to him? Does he make the Final Four? That's a great question. I think it's still going to hinge on Martinsville, kind of like it did last year. His team has struggled at Phoenix for the last several seasons. They're pretty hit or miss at Texas. So assuming they get through the round of eight, I think it's going to hinge on what they can do at Martinsville and how much of a buffer they have. I, you know, I will say I was at his shop about four weeks ago and talking to the receptionist, and when we were chatting, I wouldn't have guessed then that he would have won three races all season, much less three in a row. So that bump he's gotten in bonus points has helped. I'll say the the thing I'll step out on from a prediction standpoint is I think one of the big three misses the Homestead race. I don't know which one yet, but they're actually all close enough in points that if you get two different winners, you've created a scenario where one of them's going to fall out. Well, I think that so I had Truex missing um, the final race originally. He's since run well to start the playoffs. However, I was thinking that in that round. Um, you could have like a Denny Hamlin type win a Martinsville, say, or a Texas. Well, if Denny gets eliminated, as it seems like he's heading toward, if he does win Martinsville, which he could still go out and do, it will have no effect on the playoffs and open another playoffs spot on points. So that actually, by removing Hamlin out of the equation, that actually could help the big three, I think, um, in their quest to get there because you have one less guy who's a serious threat at one of those key tracks. I'd say another one not to sleep on is Chase Elliott. Yeah. He ran so well at Martinsville last year. He almost won Phoenix last year, and he ran really well tonight and really well at New Hampshire earlier this season. So if he makes it to that round of eight, I think he's one that could sneak into that Final Four. Yeah, and he's in my Final Four. But like I like I said, I don't have Truex in my Final Four right now, at, um, and I do have Brad in. So I'll say if I had to put my money on one driver to win the championship, I'd probably put it on Kyle Busch. Interesting, because he up until tonight, even at Vegas, he's saying, "Oh, I don't have it." You know, we're we're something's wrong with us. And he starts off tonight bad, comes back and wins. Now it looks like he's fine again. But I have Harvick, so winning. The reason I would pick Kyle Busch, and, and listen, nothing against Harvick and Rodney Childers, they're a great team. When Harvick unloads and he's the fastest car, he's unbeatable. But when the car's a little off. Among the big three, Kyle's team seems to make the best adjustments to get the car right. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to put money on one driver for one race, I want the, the, the team that's shown the most consistency in fixing the car. They did that at Chicagoland, where they seem completely off the pace. They did that to a degree tonight. That's who today I'd put my money on is Kyle Busch. Interesting. And I'm saying that painfully wearing my Brad yeah, I, yeah, I was. that's why I was kind of looking at you like, wow, okay. This is truly objective, folks. Uh, folks, uh, speaking of which, if you want to follow Macros, his Twitter name, he's an early adopter for Twitter. So he got the Twitter name Macros, M-A-T-T-G-R-O-S-S. Tell him if you uh, enjoyed the appearance on the podcast. The next podcast is going to be with Clint Boyer. It's a 12 questions, and it comes in a week where he's going to have to go out and perform at the Roval. 
to make it happen. So uh, we'll see what he has to say on that. Everybody, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast.